the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. The record-breaking mega heat wave in the Pacific Northwest this past June drove temperatures well beyond the 100 degree mark and for days. Among the hundreds of deaths caused by that heat wave was a migrant farm worker in the state of Oregon. In this episode of Challenge 2.0, we'll examine the risks farm workers face to get produce from the fields to our tables, needed protections, and the hard questions we need to ask both of ourselves and those who provide us with our groceries. Well, I'd like to welcome our two guests for this episode, Zyra Sanchez of the United Farm Workers and Christina Dahl, uh, Senior Climate Scientist with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Uh, Christy and Zyra, thank you so much for joining us for this program. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Jeff. Well, this past June, as we remember all too well, we had a record setting what's been called a mega heat wave here in the Pacific Northwest. And among the fatalities was a young farm worker in Oregon. Uh, Zyra, I know you were very involved in that and have been following that very closely. Uh, tell us a little bit more about this case. Yeah, so unfortunately, um, back in June, um, June 26, a farm worker passed away. We got word that Sebastian Francisco Perez, uh, a farm worker immigrant from Ichcan, Guatemala, had passed away um, due to heat complications uh, while he was working in a nursery um, in irrigation. And he was working in weather that was over 100 degrees um, Fahrenheit. And he had just turned 38 years old uh, the day before he passed away. So um, we were really saddened by the news that he had passed away. And unfortunately, that's what it took, right, for um, the state of Oregon to take action and uh, implement some emergency heat rules. Now, he left behind a family uh, also, did he not, uh, Zyra? Yeah, Sebastian was a husband, a brother, a son, an uncle, and a farm worker. Uh, well, Sebastian's death was certainly the focus of most of the attention in the news media, social media, etc. cetera. Uh, how much did this particular heat wave affect other farm workers here in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, this heat wave is something that, you know, farm workers are, are constantly put in extreme conditions, right? Whether it's working in cold conditions, heat, smoke right now, um, this is something that they're constantly pushing their bodies beyond what is the natural limit, right? So we know that farm workers um, are impacted by um, chronic health conditions, right? Such as like kidney disease, dehydration. Those are the main uh, issues that we see when they're working in during these heat waves. And Christy, you authored a paper entitled Too Hot to Work. Uh, share with us a little bit about what you discovered as you put that together and what the paper says. So in this report, we looked at the future impacts of um, climate change and extreme heat on outdoor workers. 
And the reason we wanted to do that was because a couple of years ago, we did a study that projected the future frequency of extreme heat across the US county by county. And we saw such extreme increases in that dangerous levels of heat. And we knew combined with that, that um, outdoor workers face up to 35 times the risk of dying due to heat exposure than the general public. So it was really important to us to look at how that rise in extreme heat would affect outdoor workers. Mm -hmm. By combining um, kind of our existing data and data from the census on where outdoor workers are working and how much they earn and what their demographics are like, with recommendations from the CDC on how outdoor work should be curtailed as the temperature rises, we were able to calculate how many work days outdoor workers could be losing due to extreme heat in the future because of climate change and what the impacts would be on their incomes. Mm -hmm. and what we found was really startling um, that you know, in the next 30 to 40 years, outdoor workers would be exposed to about four times as much extreme heat um, as they are historically, and up to $55 billion of their earnings nationwide are at risk because of that heat. And that also has a downstream effect, does it not, in local communities? I mean, those are tax revenues, they're spending money in stores and various other things. So it's uh, it has a multiplier effect, does it not? Absolutely. So like so many things when it comes to climate change, even if you're not directly affected by that extreme heat, there are all of these, uh, as you call the downstream effects, are sort of a cloud of, around someone who is affected directly. So um, you know, if you are, in a very simple example, if you're a farm worker who's directly affected by extreme heat, perhaps the food that you're harvesting doesn't get harvested, doesn't end up on people's mm -hmm. So there's a direct connection to what people are, are eating. But then there are also threats. If, if outdoor workers' incomes are reduced because of extreme heat, that's less they're paying in income taxes, that's less that a community gets in terms of services. So there are these sort of very direct effects on the workers themselves. Mm -hmm. The immediate things that they influence like our, our food and our roads and our bridges, and then this kind of economic um, cloud that's around them that affects us all in terms of the, the broader services that our communities can offer. Now, given those figures that you cited, this obviously has been perhaps a much underappreciated problem uh, over the last decade or so. How much of an increase does that represent then? That represents a very large increase. So um, it's more than a five-fold increase from the historical uh, uh, earnings that have been at risk for workers. So we go from about $10 billion per year at risk currently to about $55 billion in just the next 30 to 40 years. And we're not only speaking of farm workers, and you alluded to that, but we're talking about a whole range of people whose uh, jobs take them and demand that they be outdoors. What sort of other jobs does that involve? So in our study, we included seven different categories of occupations. So farming, fishing, forestry is one, um, construction and natural resource extraction, um, buildings and grounds cleaning and maintenance, transportation, materials moving, um, so there's a really broad range of outdoor focused occupations from the people who are, you know, fixing your roof to the people who are delivering your packages. 
And overall, it covers about 32 million workers across the US, and that, that's about one in every five workers has um, some sort of job that requires outdoor work. Have you seen that there is uh, more receptivity on the part of the workers uh, in some groups than others to saying, yes, this does impact me in terms of my long-term productivity, my ability to support a family uh, than other groups? You know, we hear it from a lot of different groups. Um, and obviously we can't be connected with every union effort in every occupational category, but for example, um, we've recently had a blog post by someone from the United Steelworkers on our website who talked about the advocacy that steelworkers have done for themselves successfully to get heat protections in place in the workplace. Um, there has been local efforts uh, amongst farm workers in Florida to get some heat protection standards in place, and they're just seeing some successes there. So, so it's happening in a very patchwork way. And that's the result of the fact that we don't have a national heat health protective standard for outdoor workers. And so we're having, you're seeing that burden of getting those protections in place fall on the workers themselves, which is completely unfair, right? It's not, that means that if you have the time and inclination and resources and enough of a coalition of workers that you can maybe make those changes happen. And, and really we should have protections that are for everyone and that are fair and just. Both at the federal level and state level, there have been either impediments put in the path of those who would like to unionize or a weakening of unions. And I'm just wondering how much of an impact has that had on the ability of workers in whatever field of work they might be in to be able to respond to this and uh, have some leverage in terms of uh, uh, meeting and affecting change with their employers. On our end, with the farm workers that we've been um, working with, they're they're afraid to participate in um, demanding their protections or filing complaints. Right. So, like on our end, we've been advocating for stronger laws, stronger heat protections, right, for farm workers. Um, and you know, we we won the emergency rules for Washington and Oregon. However just because the laws exist doesn't mean that they're very enforceable, right? And that's where we come in and uh, encouraging workers to, to know what their rights are. And if they feel afraid for whatever reason to speak up or unsure of what the process is to file a complaint, uh, we're able to help navigate what that might look like and mm -hmm. just provide the support, right? And understanding uh, what their rights are and what the symptoms are, because sometimes the the way that employers are providing the information is maybe not the most um, accessible way, whether it's due to like language barriers or they're referred to look online. And now we're dealing with like access issues to technology. That's kind of what we're working with. I think one of the more compelling stories that I've heard in the course of this work um, was a firsthand account from a woman who worked at a jack-in-the-box. It was a you know, fast food worker who during this Pacific Northwest heat wave that you all experienced was working in just, I mean, the, the conditions were horrendous inside the restaurant she was working in. You know, it took a lot of organizing and, um, you know, joining together with her fellow workers just in that individual um, location to advocate for basic things like, water and rest, even in non-outdoor work occupations, these are real challenges for workers to 
um, to you know have the support of their coworkers and the support of their managers to be in a union and to speak up for their rights. Mm -hmm. Over and over again, that when workers are able to advocate for their rights, they can win. We we just need to give them more and more support and. Uh, we also need to be looking at it at the federal level so that it doesn't fall on the shoulders of any one workers union or any one jack-in-the-box employee. We think of outdoor workers as people that are in fact outdoors, but in these heat waves, it's even someone that works indoors where say air conditioning is not available. Is that, is that correct? That's right. And you know, we see over and over again that so many people are affected indoors during a heat wave. Uh, for example, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's very temperate climate. Doesn't We don't have frequent heat waves. And so because of that, no, no people here have air conditioning and the schools are not air conditioned. But occasionally we get a major heat wave. And when that happens, classrooms are too hot to be in. There's no air conditioning at a public library to go down, go and cool off in. Sometimes in places where extreme heat is less frequent, uh, you actually have greater harm to the people when a heat wave does occur because the infrastructure is just not there to deal with it. And as you pointed out, this is something that we can expect to increase, even if it's not much of an effect right now. Here in the Pacific Northwest, I know in Seattle and Portland, the proportion of people that have air conditioning has been very low. And I think it was in the New York Times and also our Seattle Times, they said, you know, before people were sort of ridiculed as being soft if they had air conditioning and suddenly that's not a that's not a factor anymore. What have you seen or what has been raised in terms of the impact of not just short-term effects, you know, uh, certainly the death of uh, Sebastian, but also uh, the various heat strokes and heat exposure illnesses, but what about long-term effects? Has there been any research on that that you're aware of in terms of down the road a year to five years uh, or longer, what impact this has on the uh, health of people that are working out in the fields? Yeah, so we know about um, the chronic kidney disease. There's been studies that show that farm workers are more likely to have chronic kidney disease um, due to the, the situation they're dealing with on work, right? So when workers are working hard to like not take breaks, right? doing what they can to, to not have to pause the work that they're doing to go take a bathroom break or go take a water break. So they're putting a lot of um, pressure on, on their kidneys and just developing more heat stress issues. So that's a little bit of, of what I know about the, the long-term effects, but obviously like there's a whole lot of other illnesses, like just pushing their body beyond the limits where yes. the life expectancy of a worker like the average is 49 to 50 years old. So because they're pushing their body beyond these limits, right? And the other thing that farm workers are dealing with, right? Like farm workers, you know, Christy was touching on the subject of having like low income backgrounds, right? So farm workers are, are maybe not, many of them are undocumented is the reality, right? Mm -hmm. um, of the 2.4 million farm workers that we have in this nation, about half are undocumented. And so what happens is um, folks aren't eligible for health insurance or other benefits um, that other workers might have access to. And so they're less likely to go to the doctor's visits more regularly, right? Um, more likely to you know, just push through and deal with these different 
illnesses that come up for the sake of not having to go pay full price for a doctor's visit, right? Like that's just something that our family, our farm worker families can't necessarily afford. And, and the, so the illnesses and diseases build up. So Christy, I guess I'd ask both for your comment and perspective on that, and also whether farm workers tend to face bigger health risks than other outdoor workers. Was that a part of your research as well? So there have been studies about who faces the biggest risks in terms of occupational heat exposure. And those studies have shown consistently that farm workers and construction workers have the highest risks. Um, they're up to 35 times as likely to die of heat stroke or, or other heat related causes as the general public. Well, I'm just going to stop you again, because that stopped me in my tracks. Uh, give us that statistic again. I think that's worth hearing a second time. Sure. So outdoor workers, and in particular, workers in farming and in construction, have up to 35 times the risk of dying of heat-related causes as the general public. They're taking incredible risks to do work that benefits all of us every day. Um, in terms of that long-term exposure to heat, a couple of things come to mind. So Zyra mentioned the chronic kidney disease, and this is a really interesting and emerging area of research. But um, the research I've seen is primarily from countries in Central America, where they're seeing um, high numbers of workers who are working primarily outdoors, developing chronic kidney disease, and they are increasingly linking it to the fact that they're exposed to heat and exposed to a greater degree than they have been in the past. And so some researchers are actually saying that this is one of the first emerging signs of how um, climate change is impacting health worldwide. Um, so it's not just in those acute events where someone experiences heat stress and has to go to the emergency room, but this is the con one of the consequences of the climate crisis. And then it also leads to uh, reduced life expectancy then as well? Absolutely. And you know, I think one thing that often gets overlooked is that heat doesn't just cause illness, but it can cause injuries. You know, one of the first symptoms of heat um, illness is confusion and dizziness. Mm -hmm. Imagine yourself being 50 feet up on a ladder fixing someone's roof and you're starting to feel kind of dizzy and confused, the, the rate of injuries therefore increases as well. And some of those can be you know, things that lead to chronic conditions. You've developed some graphics that we'll also display later on uh, to illustrate how this varies from one area to the other. Uh, overall, what does it show for the West Coast and then for the Pacific Northwest? If you could just verbally describe that a bit for us. Sure. So along the West Coast, some of the most extreme impacts due to, ext to extreme heat that we uh, project happen in the Central Valley of California. So mm -hmm. this is the hottest area of the West Coast, aside from sort of the Southwest deserts. Um, and it's also an area that has a very high percentage of the workers working in outdoor occupations. And for the Central Valley, that's you know, primarily agricultural occupations. So it's in places, it's in that Central Valley where we see the biggest increase in the future frequency of extreme heat and the biggest impacts on workers. The Pacific Northwest, we see um, less of an impact just because the climate is so much more temperate than it is in a place like the Central Valley. 
So we don't see a huge increase in the frequency of extreme heat, but like I was saying before, it's an area of the country that is much less acclimated to it mm -hmm. and infrastructure is not built for it. So as we saw earlier in this summer, even one heat wave that might not affect, um, you know, might just be a, a blip in the climate history of a place like Florida or the Central Valley can have really devastating consequences for the Pacific Northwest. There's really no place on earth that's gonna be untouched by climate change. And even places that we think of as refuges, like the Pacific Northwest, mm -hmm. have wildfire smoke impacts and extreme heat events. The same holds true for places like the Midwest. Um, the upper Midwest is often mentioned as another climate refuge, um, but they're seeing major increases in uh, extreme precipitation, extreme rainfall events that mm -hmm. cause They've had downstream effects from wildfires in Canada this summer. So really increasingly we're seeing that this is not something that can be contained to any one part of the country. It's going to affect us all to one degree or another. Just the decision-making process, right? And choosing, yeah. okay, am I going to go to work today? Right? Like right. having that, having to make that tough decision of understanding like this is dangerous weather or climate to be working in. Right. Um, but I need to provide for my family. Um, with, with this heat wave, um, we saw that the hours that workers were needing to go in had changed, right? So the, the hours went from like, for example, working maybe 6 a.m., like starting your day at 6 p.m. and ending in the afternoon changed. Mm -hmm. Some people were working in the middle of the night. And so there was a, a need for um, like, you either had to find different type of childcare right like someone who can accommodate those needs of going in at like one in the morning okay. or there were we've we heard of instances where people actually were forced like because of the need to work they had to take their children to work with them right um and then you find out that there's cases where kids actually are working too because they're there so let's put you to work too right uh so these are the needs and these are the decisions that people are having to make just to survive, right? Obviously, there are many cases that I know we've talked about uh, in other venues in terms of where there's great resistance on the part of uh, the supervisors, the farm owners. Uh, can you just share with us, either one of us, give your particular perspectives in terms of the responses? Uh, are they improving? Are they beginning to recognize that this is not an acceptable condition for people to work in without some added help? What's been your experience with that? Christy, I might start with you and then uh, Zyra, if you could follow up. Sure. So I know in California where there have been um, heat protection standards in place for over a decade for um, outdoor workers, those standards were very hard one. Those were really difficult conversations uh, with employers who are, you know, thinking about the health of their crops, thinking about the health of their livestock, and in many cases, putting the health of those over the health of their workers. Mm -hmm. So they were, there was a lot of resistance to providing just the very basics for workers of water, shade, and rest. But we are seeing that now that we're you know, 10, 15 years into having those protections in place, we're starting to see a decrease in the number of occupational heat related injuries and illnesses in the state. And that gives us hope that, you know, this has not been a huge economic burden on employers. 
Um, and that these are these regulations are getting enforced and we are seeing the benefits to workers, though we still have a long way to go. Zara, what's been your experience with that? Have obstacles been occasionally put in your way and just how severe have some of those obstacles or attempts to prevent you from reaching those workers as you go out? When our team goes out to simply provide fresh bottles of cold water and information regarding heat illness symptoms, how to identify that, uh, we've been met with uh, employers, right, growers that uh, aren't happy to have us there. They'll ask us to leave in a not very nice way. And it's usually an aggressive interaction, right? They'll ride out on like a, a four-wheeler or an ATV and be very aggressive with us. And um, all we're doing, right, is providing cold bottles of water and information on like, these are the symptoms that you need to recognize. Mm -hmm. This is the point where you need to call 911, right? People need that. And whether the employer is providing it or not, I, I touched on the issue earlier, right? Sometimes there's a language barrier, right? So you might think that you're providing the information, but when you aren't providing it in a, a culturally uh, appropriate way, then that's not gonna come, like that isn't gonna click with the person. And, and that's one thing we do, right? We, we're a farm worker advocacy organization and workers know that. They know that we're gonna meet them where they're at to make sure that they get the information and, um, know how to move forward. Well, this leads us to the issue of what needs to be done uh, in terms of regulations or other aspects of that. And uh, we're going to do a second episode in which Christy and Zyra have both agreed to join us again. I thank you so much for joining us in this program. And we'll carry over this conversation to look at what needs to be done and what can be done, and perhaps where each of us figure into that as well. So uh, Christy and Zyra, thank you so much for joining us. And for all of you for joining us on Challenge 2.0, we hope you'll join us again next week. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining, and thought-provoking, and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of Paths to Understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization. If you've enjoyed this program, please give us five stars and leave a review. If you can also tell one friend about the show, that would be great. You can find us on social media at Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find out more and financially support the show at pathstounderstanding.org. The program is hosted by executive producer Jeff Renner, produced by Tom Butterworth and John Sharifi. Cameras and audio by Rich McAdams, Tom Butterworth, and Dean Cuccio. Ian Olson is the production assistant.